Well, I want to say uh, two things uh, this morning. Um, I know many of you, if you're used to, and, and what you miss so dearly about last year's Easter service is our, our yearly declaration of the best, breast, best dressed male who comes on Easter Sunday. And, I, and really, you know, there, there's, a, there's a committee that can th- considers this for weeks in advance, and then I arbitrarily make a decision when I get up here. And this year, our winner is Avery Kelly, and mostly because of his shoes. I'm not sure where Avery went, but Avery is just a, a beautifully dressed young man, and I, we just want to applaud him and, uh, and encourage him in that feat. I also want to say, hey, thanks for coming out to our Easter egg hunt. For those of you that were able to do that yesterday, it was, it was an incredible time. Uh, the only flaw was the, uh, the temporary tattoo table. Um, my four-year-old is now going to look like Mike Tyson in our Easter photos this morning, um, which is fun. It's just fun. She's got, she's got a full sleeve on each arm. Um, so mom is really thrilled with that. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're so glad that you're here with us. We've been looking through um, the book of Ephesians for the last uh, couple, well, really months, and we, frankly, we're muddled in it. Um, uh, muddled and mired in Ephesians in all the good ways, I would suppose. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've been saying, we've been sharing a lot of bad news. If you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you'll pick up on it pretty quick. It starts out pretty dire, uh, and it, it, it gets worse for a few verses. Uh, and this morning, we are going to get to the good news, though. But read along with me. I'm going to read out loud. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, that means you were born by your essence, you were children of wrath, but we're in good company like the rest of mankind. But God, it says in verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated up with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. This is the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, do you know what a game changer is? If you stayed up way too late like I did last night, you saw a game changer. UCLA had the ball with eight seconds to go, down by two. They drove, they missed, they gathered the rebound, and they put it back in, tied, two seconds. Ball gets inbounded towards George Court's half court. The player crosses half court. Shot goes up. Buzzer sounds. Banking in. A game changer. There's good ones. There's also bad ones. Just ask Bill Buckner. Oops. That's a game changer. That's a game changer. In sports, it's the moment where everything appears to be going in one direction. All the momentum is going one direction, and then something happens that changes the whole a ball game. And that's just not simply it happens in sports. It happens in life as well. Moments when the whole trajectory of your life shifts. When everything is going in one direction, and then it goes into complete others. Heard the story of a man a couple years ago who shared his game changer. For him, it was when he was 12 years old. And he went back to the spot. His, actually, his counselor told him he needed to do that. He was going to Mississippi, 
And he didn't live in Mississippi. He, he went to Mississippi to go to his grandparents' house. His grandparents were long dead and gone. They had sold the house. And in fact, he wasn't even sure he could find the home anymore. But he said, it, he told a friend that if, I'm, if I could find this house, I'm gonna knock on the door. I'm gonna speak to whoever lives there. And I'm gonna ask if I can come in. And I'm gonna do this because my counselor wants me to, to stand in, this, in the very spot where I heard the news from my grandmother that as a 12-year-old, that, is my, that my father and my brother, my older brother, had been killed in a plane crash. And my whole life changed from there on out. That I've begun to understand that the trauma of that moment, that it, everything in my life has flowed out of that. My marriage, my relationships, my parenting, my leadership, my whole life shifted in that moment. It was a game changer. We know there are events in life that are so traumatic, so horrible, that can take the direction of our life and plunge it downward in a terrible direction. But here's the question. Is there an event that's so wonderful? Could there be an event that's so powerful, so uplifting, that it could actually reverse the trajectory of your life in a positive direction? Wherever since you experience that, that your life has moved into riches upon riches upon riches? Well, we come to what might be called the ultimate game changer in the Bible. The ultimate game change verse in the Bible. To hear the game change, you must have a sense of the trajectory of our life as it's talked about in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Verses 1 through 3, well, they go like this. Things are bad. Things are really bad. Things are really, really bad. That's how they go. And this must be understood or nothing, nothing of the good news I'm going to tell you this morning is going to relate to you. You see, there is some information that must be understood in order to capture the rest of the story. Charles Dickens begins a Christmas carol just like that. Here's how it begins. Marley, Marley, now to begin, Marley was dead. And there is no doubt about it, whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, and the undertaker. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be understood or nothing will come of this story that I'm going to relate. Here's what you must understand. If you're going to understand what verse 4 through 8 says then you need to understand that what verses one through three says is that you are spiritually dead. You have to know that. At the beginning of the Bible, we had a choice. At the beginning of human history, we had a choice. Our father Adam, representing all of us, had a choice to live life with God or live life without God. And we chose autonomy. Whether it was autonomy that led us to murder people or autonomy that led us to live very nice looking lives that were life without God. Whatever it was, we chose it without him. And the question is for humankind, how is that working out for us? You see, when we cho chose life without God, we cut ourselves off from air, and so we're dead. We cut ourselves off from our life source, and so we are spiritually dead. Yes, we walk around physically, but we are spiritual zombies, physically alive of some sort, but ultimately, at the core of ourselves, we are dead. We are dead, it says, that sin has killed the deepest part of who we are, that part of us that was intended to know and enjoy God. Think about physical death. If you look at cadavers, what's, do they respond to anything? There is no impulse. There is no stimuli. They're unresponsive. And so are we. We are unfeeling. We have no response to God or his word, our mind, our affections, our actions are unresponsive and unfeeling toward him. And because of this, we are condemned. We come into the world condemned. The wrath of God as we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, is his settled opposition towards everything that is destroying what he loves, and that includes you and me. And therefore, we need to be saved. 
but we are hopeless to do so. Because what can dead people do? The image that people so often use, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I'm gonna bring it back up just in case you've forgotten or you didn't hear it. The image that we so often use, the good news that we give to people who walk into the church doors and that we go out and we communicate to people is that here's the image that you are lost at sea and you're in a little rubber dinghy and things are bad. You're in dire straits. You have no, you have no water and the sharks are circling your little rubber dinghy. But God in his grace has flown out to you on his helicopter. He has rappelled the rope down to you and all you must do is reach out and grab that rope and hang on for dear life and he will pull you up into salvation. That illustration and that metaphor is wrong. It is wrong. You are, you are not alive in the boat. In fact, you're not in the boat. You are already shark chum. You are minnow food. There is no hand to lift. There is no ability to respond. That's what dead means. You are not sinking. You are sunk in sin. You are not drowning. You are drowned in sin. Not that you're actually up on the surface holding out, pleading for Jesus, but that you're at the bottom of the sea and you don't even know he's calling to you because you're dead. Verse four, but God. But God, now that's a game changer. You were dead in sin, it says, but God. You live for the world, but God. You were under the power of the evil one, but God. You followed every whim of your flesh to the point you were utterly enslaved to sin, but God. You were by nature deserving wrath, unable to change, unable to do anything to remove guilt from you, not just your life, but from your very being, but God. One pastor in England said, in the middle of the 20th century said this, he said, these two words, but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the good news of the gospel. In this text, we go from the dark to the dawn. We go from the darkness of night to the noonday brightness of God's grace. That's what we see. But God. You say, but God what? But God is not a whole sentence. We need some verbs. So let me give you some. But God. I'll tell you who God is this morning and what he has done. What he has done. But God, first, is mercifully loving. Mercifully loving. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, why is he merciful? Because of the great love with which he loved us. What happens that is of any good, any mercy, any rescue, salvation happens to you because of the love of God. And my question to you is why, why would God be loving to you? Why would he be good to you? And this is the, something that you will, if you become a believer, if you're somebody who walks with Jesus, that you will get to plumb into the depths of this for the rest of your life, indeed for all of eternity grasping fuller and fuller measures of that question, the wonder and the awe. Why would you be good to me? I had a professor named Simon Kistemacher. He was a very, very old man by the time I had him. He was a Dutchman, and one of his students asked him, this is the kind of dumb questions that seminary students ask the professors once in, a, once in a while. Of all the passages in the Bible, he said, what would be the passage that is most difficult for you to understand? And old Dr. Simon Kistemachter in his old Dutch accent said, you know, the students have been expecting me to say something as a learned scholar, something profound from Leviticus or from Revelation. But Dr. Kistemachter said, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And he said, I have yet to understand that God would love me. Why doesn't God look at us and say, you know what, I'm fed up with your hypocrisy, your lies, your foolishness, your promises that you've never kept, your, your unfaithfulness to me. Why doesn't God say, enough, I've had it with you. Why does he look at you and say with disgust, be gone? 
because of the great love with which he has loved us. When was the last time you were stunned by the love of God? It will change the trajectory of your life if you realize it. It will change the way you actually view yourself. Steve Jobs, in, 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 the, in the getting ready for um, his death, was actually involved in the, the making of his biography. And was, uh, in an interview, was, was, was asked about some stories from his life. And he retells a story about being a child and he was outside his front lawn and a, and a neighbor by, by near him knew that he had, was adopted and came and asked him, she says, you were adopted, does that mean your real parents didn't want you? She was a real sensitive soul, real sensitive soul. And he said, lightning bolts went off in my head. And I remember running into my house crying and asking my parents. And my parents sat me down and said, don't you understand? Don't you understand? We chose you. We picked you. And he said, from that on, the narrative of my life was not Steve Jobs, the abandoned boy. It was Steve Jobs, the chosen and beloved one. If you belong to Jesus, then you are the chosen and beloved of God. That is an abounding grace of the Lord's. And do you see the shape that grace takes, that love takes here? It takes the shape of mercy. Why mercy? Because that's what we needed. Love twists itself. Love reshapes itself into what we need. We learned last week that we are by nature objects of wrath. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. And we deserve, we deserve it eternally. Mercy, though, has the sense of being, having favor being shown to us in such a way that all those things are removed from us. All the wrath, all the destruction, all the judgment. And in the death of Jesus Christ, we got that. He took all that we deserved. That's mercy. That's mercy. And because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath. But in the mercy of God, he takes our sin and he covers it and he takes the punishment for our sin. I was watching an interview this week. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us at the cross. A young mom over in Noonan was describing right, I mean, within hours after the tornado, went through Noonan last week. And they're asking, what did you do? And she talked about taking your kids into the bathroom and putting pillows all around them. And then she said, I simply laid my body on top of them. What was she saying? I'll take the blow. I'll take the blow. That is mercy. That is mercy. Love reshapes itself. It actually twists itself into the mercy that we need. Now listen, if you've been to my weddings... And I've only been married once. I, do, I marry a lot of other people. <laughs> you've, heard this, you've heard this illustration. Or if you come to one of my future weddings, I'm going to use it again. And so you have to promise to forget it. But Robert, Robert Sizer says, uses this illustration and shares about a story. He, was, he wrote a number, a number of a book about all, some of the surgeries he did. And he said there was one surgery he particularly remembers in which he had to remove a tumor from a young woman. She had recently been married. Within a year... In order to remove the tumor, he had to sever, though, in the midst of the surgery, a facial nerve. And this left for her mouth in a permanent palsy, twisted and gnarled, all the way down to her lips. And he writes about the young husband and the re his reaction. He said the young woman, as he took the bandage off the young woman and she saw her face and, she, and her mouth and what it would look like, she dropped her eyes. And she looked at her husband and she says, is this how my face will always look? And the doctor said, yes, yes. And very quickly she drops her head, but very, very speedily he said, her husband grabs her face and looked her in the eye and he kissed her. But he said, what was so amazing was this, that because of the palsy of her face and her lips, the husband had to twist his face to fit to hers. That's what Jesus does for you. Love twists 
itself into the form and the shape it needs in order to cover us, to spread himself over us. He twisted his body to cover your sin so that God may be merciful to you. Now listen, listen, that is such good news. That is such good news. A loving God, but God is loving in his mercy. Now listen, I I can be fairly loving and merciful every once in a while. I would jump in front of my kids. I would lay down upon, upon them and let the blow hit me. I can be loving, but you know what I can't do? I can't raise people from the dead. I can be merciful, but my mercy can't bring people back to life. What must join love and mercy? Power. Power must join love and mercy. We were dead, and so what we needed was a power. Power that could do what? that could defeat death. But God, second thing, but God, the loving and merciful God, he can also defeat death. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us in verse five, and when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Really quickly, what he is saying here and what he's speaking about here is spiritual resurrection. That you were dead spiritually and you have gone from death to life. You once had no spiritual feeling. You did not long for God, and now suddenly all of your longings change. All the things that you, the way you see the world changes. You could not want God because you were dead. You could not save yourself from your terrible situation because you were dead. You could not cry out for help because you were dead, but now you want God. You can cry out to God. You can cling to God. We call this, in theological terms, what is called regeneration or new birth. You've heard of the phrase maybe being born again. That's what this is. New spiritual life, except you don't birth yourself. That's a ridiculous metaphor. The whole reason why the Bible uses it is because God does it to us. We are unable to actually respond to God God by him giving us life first. By the power of resurrection grace, grace is powerful. You are resurrected out of your sin into a new life. And with this new life comes faith. You come pre-wired in the new life to extend your faith towards God, to cling to him. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't say, I'm going to give you the potentiality of faith. No, when I bring new life into you, the greatest longing of your heart to say, I want God. Now understand that Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 are referring here to spiritual resurrection. And it's a resurrection power that mimics Jesus' resurrection. Just look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. We saw this a number of months ago. This prayer of Paul's, after giving the gospel, he says this. My prayer is that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might. What kind of great might? Where does he, what's his illustration of what great might looks like? Here's what it is. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. This is the exact same language that we see in verses 5 and 6. You were dead in trespasses, but he made us alive. By grace you've been saved. And what did he do? He raised us up and he seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. What I want you to see is the same power that we have come to celebrate this morning about resurrection and Easter morning is the same power that raises you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Our spiritual death has been swallowed up in Jesus' resurrection victory. The guilt and power of sin have been conquered by the Savior who now resides in us. Easter is a celebration. It's a celebration that God in his mercy has led, has had the life of his son twisted and broken and his blood shed to cover your sin. That's what Jesus did. 
But then he took the death we deserved, and he entered into death, and he destroyed death by his mighty arm. And he did so while he was weak. You see, we see in the scriptures the evidence that all three members of the Trinity were involved in the resurrection. And in various places, all three members of the Trinity are given credit. The Father raises Jesus. The Spirit raises Jesus. But Jesus also says, I will raise myself. He said this, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. I have the power, he says, to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. The departure of life leaves man necessarily powerless. He cannot restore himself, but Jesus, God's son, can. He was, he, he was dead and buried, but he made himself alive. Herein is a marvelous thing. Therefore, he is the master over death. Even when death seemed to have mastered him, he crushed it. He entered grave as its captain, but he came out as the grave's conqueror. He was compassed, I mean, he was held by the, the bonds of death, but he could not be held by death. We've sung of this already this morning. And Jesus was enslaved, it seemed, by death, but he broke free into liberty. If in the extremity of weakness, of taking on flesh, he had the power to rise out of the tomb and to come forth into new glorified life, how much more can he accomplish while seated on the throne in your heart and life? There is only one savior from death, the one who can defeat it. And so far, he's the only one. And he does. The resurrection is the evidence. That's why we go crazy as Christians about this. Paul says, if we don't have this, then this is pointless. If we have this, you should go nuts. You should like gather every week and you should tell people about this savior. Jesus not only takes the sins, but he takes the punishment and he puts an end to what we our sins deserve, which is death. And therefore Jesus says to us, I, I am the resurrection and the life. He does not say, believe in Christ and desire new life. No, no, no. These two things are the same. If you have Christ, you have life. If you have Christ, you have new birth. If you have Christ, you have resurrection. So my question is, do you have Christ? Here's what it means to anyone who is spiritually living. Understand this. What we're talking about here is a spiritual miracle. Now, I've actually heard this said a lot of times from pulpits, and I've always felt that it was just kind of like spiritual hallmarkisms. You're just a miracle? Look at you. I was actually, but I actually thought about it this week, and it's actually true. Because what is a, what is a physical resurrection? It, it is the reversal, the reversal of the natural order. That's what a miracle is. It is this, this super overcoming the natural order. Well, what is a spiritual miracle? When you go from death to life. So wouldn't you know, I've been wrong all these years. You are a little miracle, just as resurrection is the suspension of the natural order, so is the spiritual natural order, right? It says we are by nature objects of wrath, and now you're objects of what? Love and mercy. You are dead. You go into a room of cadavers, and not one is, you know, you don't go in there and go, you know, this one's dead. This one's only, this one's a little bit more dead. We are all dead. If you're a Christian, then you're a recipient of a spiritual miracle. Now, understand this. I don't, that means this. I don't care if you grew up in church or you were a hardcore druggie. Here is the kind of power it took to save you. And so for you children who've been growing up in the church, understand this, the power of God saves you. Do not defame your testimony. 
And if you're this, if you are currently the person who is in a place of utter lostness, there is a power to save you. There is no lostness that he cannot break and he cannot find you. And he cannot, he's actually dove into death to bring you home to himself and he'll make you spiritually alive. And so what are we to conclude? What are we to conclude? God saves because he loves and has the power to save. Therefore, what? What does Paul conclude about this salvation? Verse five and six. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Why or how? By grace, you have been saved. So if you were dead and you could do nothing and you certainly couldn't raise yourself, now we find ourselves raised. We know it was not us that did it. Not God, not God and a little bit of you. Not a lot of you. And then God came swooping in saying, man, they're doing so well. I'll help them along. No, you, never, you would never cling to Jesus by faith unless God works. So we ask the same question we asked at the beginning. But God. But God what? But God, period. Period. That's what we refer to as grace. Unmerited favor. Grace that God loves wretches. Grace that God was merciful to sinners. Grace that God has love-motivating power. Grace, grace, grace. In case he wasn't clear enough by saying, by grace you have been saved, Paul adds this just a few verses later, just in case we were confused. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God. Not of your doing. The Bible doesn't say you're screwed up. But then we went to a seminar one weekend and we started to work a lot harder. No, we contribute nothing to be made right with God. Nothing, nothing. Dead people don't take the initiative. It's all of grace. Grace is God's favor to the utterly, the utterly undeserving. There was a man who was a director of worship and music at a very large church in Birmingham. This man had two children, a son and a daughter. His daughter was a student at Sanford University. One day, his daughter came home to do, to do laundry, to say hey to her family, and she was pulling back out of the driveway to go back to school. They lived on a fairly busy, curvy road, and someone came around the corner at a high speed and plowed right into her car, killing her instantly. They had the memorial service a week later. It was an excruciating and exhausting and long day for the family. They had visitation. It was a large church. They visited with thousands handshakes and hugs, then the service, then the graveside. But it was after all was said and done, at the end of this exhausting day filled with grief and joy and a thousand handshakes and hugs, this pastor and his family, this worship pastor, piled into their car and they went to the home of the 16-year-old who was driving the car that killed their daughter. You see, this young man was also a member of their church. And they pulled into the room And they gathered him close, and the man said, my daughter's life is over, but my great fear is that I would lose you too. Because this could destroy you. I want you to know that I hold nothing against you, and actually, I love you. That's grace. Unmerited favor. Who can do that? God can do that. And those empowered to extend such grace. You see, we killed his boy Your sin plowed into him. Your sin killed him. But the Bible looks at us and says, forgiven. Forgiven and I love you. So my question for you this morning is, will you embrace this grace? Or will you seek to do life on your own? 
That's always been man's solution. More of me. More of me. Listen, understand you can fix, fix your life to some degree without Jesus. People do it all the time. You can read self-help books. You can change your diet. You can do therapy. You can get disciplined. You can fix your life without Jesus. And by the way, if there is a way to fix your life without Jesus, most of, it will, most of us will choose it. And frankly, many of us will choose religion, a moral form of religion without Jesus. But ultimately understand this, it won't work. It won't work. Scott Sossel in the Atlanta Magazine was talking, wrote about his dealing with his anxiety a couple of years ago. And here's what he said, all the ways he's tried to fix himself. He said this, here's what I've tried. He said, I've tried individual psychotherapy, three decades of it. Family therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational motive behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, hypnosis, meditation, role-playing, interoceptive exposure therapy, in vivo exposure therapy. By the way, I want neither of those. If therapy involves the word exposure, I'm out. Self-help books, massage therapy, acupuncture, yoga, stoic philosophy, and audio tapes I ordered off late night TV infomercial. Oh, and medications. Boy, have I tried medications. Thorazine, Ipramine, Desipirine, Darnardil, Boost Bar, Brozac, Rosoloff, Paxil, Wellbutrin, Effexor, Selexa, Lexapro, Cymbalta, Lovox, Troxidone, Traxine, Cerax, Centrax, St. John's Wort, Valium, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin. And if I'm being honest, I've also tried beer, wine, gin, bourbon, vodka, and scotch. Here's what's worked. Nothing. Nothing. And the real danger, frankly, for any of us is that any of those would work. Because if you can get your life clean and improved, the pain of your life goes away for a little bit. You can get a little bit better, but understand this, you would still be dead spiritually. You'd be putting makeup on a spiritual cadaver. You can make new friends. You can join new groups. You can find a new church. You can order your life. You can improve your life. You can lose weight. You can get education, but you will still be dead because the core problem of your life will not have been addressed. Because the real problem in our life is not our finances, and it's not our depression, and it's not our marriage. The core problem is that we believe that we can do life without God. And the first sign that you know that maybe you are finally alive, that that new birth has happened to you, is when you say, I can't do it by myself anymore. God, I need you. I have nothing to offer, I've tried everything. I need you. The way you have him is you finally admit that he is the one thing, the one thing that you must have, the one thing that will save you, save you from you. This means you ask for grace. You must ask it perhaps in the way the old charity, the old word, English word was charity. You got to ask for charity. Our hearts resist that. We hate that word, charity. We don't like to see ourselves as ones who need charity. But can you own that you are the ultimate charity case? C.S. Lewis is writing, I quoted from C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce last week, same book. It's about the divide between heaven and hell. He writes about a man who was in hell. He was a, he'd been a good man. He lived a fairly good life, and he gets a day pass from hell to go visit heaven just to see what it was like. And the man who was in hell, had he lived a good, decent, honest life, but he's in hell. And so he gets this day passed, and he goes, and he, he gets a tour guide from heaven, and yet he finds that he remembers this man. He, re, he knew this man who was his, his tour guide, and he's appalled to remember that this man was a murderer. He's appalled when this man walks up and informs him that he is his tour guide who's gonna to take him through heaven, to show him around. And this is how their conversation went. The man from hell said this, how did you get here? The man from heaven, everything in here is for the asking. Nothing can be purchased. Nothing can be bought. It's all simply for the asking. Man from hell, well, well, 
You have to hear this in an English accent. You, you will never find me asking for any bleeding charity. Man from heaven. Well, that's just it, isn't it? Everyone here asks for the bleeding charity. Have you asked for the bleeding charity from heaven? The bleeding charity. Luther said this, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores to health none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but those who know they're blind, and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to anybody but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. So let me ask you this. Are you bad enough to be asking for bleeding charity? Are you bad enough to cling to grace and grace alone? God is looking for charity cases. And if you're not a charity case, then frankly, you don't know him. But someone who has been made alive, they look at the, if you've been made alive, you look at yourself, look down at what do you have to offer. Your hands are out like this, and you shrug, you shrug your shoulders, and with your hands out simply say, nothing in my hands I, I bring. Nothing. I simply cling to the cross of Jesus. You bring nothing. But guess what? In him you can have everything, including life and life eternal. But God... But God what? But God saves. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you put the amazing back into grace for us this morning. For us who have forgotten what wretched sinners we are, would you do it? <laughs> would, you, would you remind us? Lord, that is a dangerous, painful prayer. That you would remind us how desperately we need grace. And for those who are here this morning, because, frankly, this checks off a box, and this fits, um, this fits, this fits, it's this nice little part of the square. This is a piece of the puzzle. Come to church, do the religious thing, sing the songs. Lord, I pray that you would reveal, reveal our, our attempts to clean up ourselves. And would you give us true grace from a fount of living water that would reveal to us how desperately we need you. So Lord, would you be merciful to display to us, to everyone in this room, how desperately we need you? But Lord, would you reveal to us our deadness and sin, how great our sin is, would your grace flood in all the more? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.